Thank you for joining us here at First Baptist Church of San Antonio, whether online or on broadcast, in your homes or wherever you may be. We want you to know that you are more than welcome to be a part of the life of this church, and we want you to know that we want you to meet Jesus today. In order for this to happen regularly, we need your support, we need your prayers, and we need your financial gifts. Please continue to give and be a part of what we do today. Parents, can I encourage you just for a minute? I'm gonna give you a task too. Um, would you read Job with your kids at home? Um, you don't have to read all of it. Um, just, just read the reverse portions. Would you take some time this week, maybe once or twice, uh, to just read through that poetry with them? And, and sometimes um, we take for granted the, the power of the Spirit of God in reading his word out loud to our kiddos. We think, gosh, this is just way too heavy for them. Uh, and, and maybe that's true, but God's put you in their life to help them process these things. But would you read? That's your task. If you're not already reading the scriptures with your kids, take some time this week to do that, okay? All right, so we're, we're in Job chapter two. Last week was a particularly heavy week as we were in Job chapter Three, uh, chapter three, and Blake was able to lead us through and process through those heavy feelings of longing for death that Job was experiencing in the midst of his extraordinary suffering. And sit in that with Job. Sit in that with Job. And so this morning, um, we have an opportunity to look at something a little different in the midst of Job's suffering, and that is his friends and how they begin to interact with Job, which is really the heart of this story in this book of wisdom. With that said, there are a few things I want to remind you of that we need to hold on to as we walk through a book like Job. The first thing as a reminder that Job is a book from out of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Other, there are two others that quickly come to mind when we think of wisdom literature. The first one is Proverbs. Proverbs offers us that ordered look of the world that when you act foolishly, foolish things happen to you, harmful things happen. But when you act wisely, you bear wise fruit in your life. And Proverbs offers that look of that ordered world when good thing, when you do good things, good things tend to take shape. When you do foolish things, harmful things tend to take shape. And then we also have Ecclesiastes, which kind of throws everything in the air and says, wait a minute, not everything is roses in this world. 
It's not as ordered as Proverbs would have us to believe. Proverbs is, is very general in how it talks about wisdom, but Ecclesiastes kind of identifies, man, life is hard. Life is hard. And then we find ourselves with Job, and Job invites us to consider, is God wise and just in a world where the innocent suffer? God in a world like that. That's what Job invites us to together. Remember is Job is poetry. It's intended to be read out loud. It's original cures. We're not reading this at home in their quiet time. They were listening to this, maybe more than one voice as there are different voices. Job, from memory, people were reciting this book. It was intended to be read as poetry out loud. And poetry has a way of capturing human emotion more than any other genre. And that's on purpose in Job. There's a reason that this is not just a history book. Job processes what he feels and his questions towards God in poetry because poetry captures for us the human experience in the midst of suffering and that's on purpose for us. The third thing that I want us to remember and hold on to as we work through Job is that for Job, the question of where his suffering is coming from is never in question for Job. Job never asked the question, who is causing my pain? Job is not a dialectic on the sovereignty of God and the nature of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty from page one is always assumed by Job throughout. Hold on to that. The fourth thing that we discover in Job that I think we need to hold on to is that Job's feelings or thoughts as it relates to his suffering does not progress in a straight line. This is what I mean. When we read the writings of Paul, he has a very clear argument. He begins here, he goes here, and he has a conclusion. It's very ordered. When we're dealing with the emotions and the processing of Job, it's not ordered in a straight line. Job is all over the map. And let me tell you, so are you, so are me. When we find ourselves in the midst of hurt and pain, do your emotions follow a straight line? No. You can feel one way in the evening and wake up the next morning feeling something completely different. And so Job, we find him in a lot of different places in his emotions, and that is okay. It's okay for us, too, as we process those things that we feel. The fifth thing that I want us to know before we actually get to chapter two and then chapter 22 is this. By the time we get to chapter two, a lot has already been said, especially from Job. There's a lot of dialogue that has gone on. In some ways, reverse does us, does us a disservice in that it's jumping us around. By the time we get to 22, there's a whole lot of conversation and argument and debate and feelings and accusations that have happened and we are just finding ourselves in chapter 22. A few of those things that Job has said already, we're gonna revisit, not all of them, but some of the things that have already come out of his mouth before we get to chapter two, the first thing is worship. God gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Who am I not to trust in God or only trust in him when life is good, but also when life is hard. 
We see him in chapter three where Job just says, can you just end this? Can you just crush me? Can you just snuff me out? I wish I had never even been born. Job has already said these kind of things. Job says, before we get to chapter two, God, it's like you're breathing down my neck. I can't get away from you. He says things like that. Job also says, I know that no man can stand before God. And then also he says, God, where are you? One minute he says, I feel like you're breathing down my neck. The next minute he says, where in the world are you? And then Job also demands an audience before God, even though he just said the moment before, I, no man can stand before you. Job says things like this, explain yourself to me. God, why me? Job will say, what have I done to deserve the suffering that I'm experiencing? Job says things like this before we get to chapter two. What, what good is living this life if I'm only meant to suffer at God's hands? What good is it? Or what good is life if suffering is arbitrary? It seems to have no rhyme or reason. The wicked prosper and the innocent suffer. Why would I wanna live in a life like that? All of these things Job has said before we even get to chapter 22. Ultimately, Job will ask before we get to 22, how in the world can I trust your wisdom and judgment, God, when suffering like this happens to people who are innocent? A lot, of, a lot has been said. The action that we find or the movement of action in Job is driven along by these kind of very hard conversations that Job has with his Friends. It's a back and forth between Job and three friends. Eventually a fourth will come in, but that's the driving action. That's the whole, uh, the body of this story is this dialogue between friends. And so chapter two sets up for us this conversation and we become overhearers of this back and forth between Job and his friends. And in some way, like Blake suggested last week, in some way, uh, this interaction serves us as an invitation to sit alongside these friends and to listen and to ask our own questions. But today, this morning, these texts serve to teach us something about the nature of friendship. What is friendship all about? First and foremostly, something that I want us to consider is that we were made for friendship. And perhaps all of life, the summary of all of life is to know and to be known. After all, isn't that what Jesus said? This is eternal life, that, the, that you know the one true God and the one whom he has sent. When we look at the paradigm of fellowship with God in, in Genesis from the very beginning and in marriage, we see this, this design to, be know, to know and to be known. Perhaps all of life is about understanding how to be a friend and to navigate and cultivate these friendships that I think we can learn something here from Job. We need real friends in this life, especially when it gets hard. So the question for us today as we look through these texts is what kind of friends will we be? What kind of friend do we need to be? And to be honest, um, I struggle with this. I feel like there are so many ways that I need to learn how to be a good friend. And there are so many ways which I fall short in being a good friend. 
and maybe you're like me in this, but I need this teaching from Job today as we watch his friends interact in these conversations. So very quickly, I'm going to go through these quickly. I want to identify some qualities, some really great qualities that we see with Job's friends as they interact. We've already read the text, but let me begin in chapter 2, verse 11. Just reading this text, we're going to walk through these verses and identify really incredible qualities of friendship that we can learn from. And the first one is this, is that um, Job's friends heard about his suffering and they did something about it. In verse 11, it says, when three friends of Job, when three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, listen, I I imagine it was still like wildfire. We think we hear of news quickly. I I don't think it was that much different. You know, Job heard of the loss of his kiddos because a servant ran to him. I a runner who was going to his neighbors, even though they might not have been close together, but they heard likely very quickly because news travels fast. And the result of that hearing, the scripture says, is that they got together and they traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Isn't that a beautiful picture of sympathy and empathy for their friend Job? They hear of his suffering. They get together with those in his community and say, listen, we have heard the news. A beautiful picture of sympathy towards Job. And it doesn't stay there. They don't just talk about it. This isn't, this isn't gossip. Can you believe what happened to Job? I can't believe, man, it's horrible. These men wanted to do something. So they hear of it and then they decide to lay aside all other responsibilities to tend to their own households, their own land, their own businesses, and says, we're going to go to him. And they travel to Job. Their gathering resulted in action. And they traveled, it says, to console and comfort him. They had the aim to, to bring comfort to Job, not for gossip, gossip not spectating. It's amazing. Um, the kind of videos, if you peruse online, the kind of videos that you see uh, of people taking videos of horrible things happening to people, isn't that amazing? That's not what's going on here. These men here, they don't gawk at his suffering. They go to Job to comfort him and console him. And so this is what I want us to remember first is when friends hear of your suffering, when real friends hear of your suffering, they come together and they come to console. Not only did they hear, but the text tells us that they saw in verse 12, it says, when they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. You know, it's one thing to hear of suffering It's a whole other thing to see it up close, isn't it? I imagine many of us have been in that situation where we hear of a friend or an acquaintance who has uh, begun to undergo treatment for cancer or you name the suffering. It's one thing to hear about it, but it's another thing to walk to them and see it with your own eyes. And that's exactly what they did. They, They saw... Job's suffering up close and personal with their own eyes. And the scripture says this, when they do see that, what do they do? 
They scarcely recognized him, wailing loudly. They tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. They, they wailed and grieved in a very visible and physical way, which was customary of the day. It was expected when you come alongside someone who is grieving uh, that you tear your robe, you wear burlap sackcloth and you throw ash or dust upon your head. And so that's exactly what happens. The friends draw near, they see him, they don't recognize him. His suffering becomes all that more real and they very tangibly, physically grieve with Job. It's a beautiful picture. And it made me wonder, what do we do in our day to show our tangible grief? What are some ways that we do that? Brainstormed this morning in our Bible study group, maybe, maybe some um, bake a batch of cookies, which is not, not, it's a great idea, by the way. I think we express grief by trying to meet need, right? We, we say, hey, can we provide a meal for you? Um, what can we do for you? Uh, we send cards or maybe we put a post and, or we send a text with a, 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 um, you know, an emoji that has a tear running down its face. There are different ways that we express grief, but that's what happened here. They saw and expressed his grief. In Romans chapter 12, uh, in verse 19, Paul says, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Paul says, listen, we're, we're called to come alongside those in grief and we're called to weep with them to show them that we understand and sympathize with their suffering. If you go back to verse nine of chapter 12 in Romans, he kind of precedes these kind of very quick statements. He says, don't just, to, don't just pretend to love others. It's so one of the practical ways that we really love people is by expressing our grief alongside those who are suffering in tangible and physical ways. And so if we were able to put that in a statement, we would say, um, uh, we would, there we go. We would say, when friends see your suffering, they grieve with you. When friends see your suffering, they grieve with you. So they heard and they saw, they, they came close, they grieved with Job. And then it says that they drew near in a different kind of way. In verse 13, it says, when they sat on the ground with him, then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job. For they saw that his suffering was too great for words. Thank you. They saw that his suffering was too great for words. They were silent. And what we see in the text that stands out to us is that they heard, they gathered, and then they sat on the ground with Job. When I was um, a young boy, I grew up in, I grew up in West Africa, and um, I had a, a dog named Kaiser. He was a German shepherd, and, and full breeds don't do too well in Africa because of the various parasites they can encounter, and Kaiser was six months old before um, he started developing a sickness and, and sometime between, I can't remember the age, but Kaiser was dying. So um, I remember as a little boy, um, and at this point he probably was about 50 pounds, I just had Kaiser in my lap and just sat with him 
until finally he took his last breath. I also remember um, uh, when, I, when I grew up in Africa, my friends, we would, it was kind of crazy. We climbed buildings. All the buildings were like, they didn't have like roofs like this where we were. Uh, it was all flat roofs. And um, particularly a friend of mine, we would climb a lot of buildings during the day. It was crazy. We'd jump off second floors into sand piles. Anyway, I remember, don't ever do that, kids. Don't do that. Um, so I remember this one time we were uh, on the roof of a building and there were two morning doves uh, side by side together. Um, and we discovered that one was injured, but the other was not. And the other would not leave the dove side. It didn't matter what we did. This, this dove could have flown away, uh, you know, sought shelter from these two young boys running around on this roof. But no, it stuck by the side. And that's what we find here. We, we find uh, these friends coming alongside Job and sitting with him in his suffering. Just, in a way, holding him, being present, uh, not going anywhere sitting in his suffering. That's what we find. And so what we discover here in this quality of friendship is that friends draw near to you in your suffering. Friends draw near. Lastly, um, the friends speak. They saw, they heard, they drew near, and the friends speak. So up to this point, they get a lot of things right. They got everything right. Uh, They model for us what it means to be a friend in times of grief and suffering. We have a lot to learn from Job's three friends, and things begin to unravel when they open their mouth. And these verses in chapter 22 really capture for us the heart of his friend's message that has been the thrust of their conversation throughout the previous 22 chapters. Um, In some ways, Job 22 is a summary for us of how the friends have been engaging with Job once they begin to speak. And so um, I want to read with you. Um, I want to read with you uh, just verses 1 through 11. So remember I told you poetry is intended to be read out loud. This is not in Hebrew, of course. We're missing out probably a lot of meter and words that rhyme and all that kind of stuff. And so we're going to do the best we can. So receive this. I'm going to read Job 22, verses 1 through 11. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied to Job, Can a person do anything to help God? Can even a wise person be helpful to him? Is it, is it any advantage to the Almighty if you are righteous? Would it be any gain to him if you were perfect? Is it because you're so pious that he accuses you and brings judgment against you? No. It's because of your wickedness. There's no limit to your sins. For example, you must have lent money to your friend and demanded clothing as security. Yes, you stripped him to the bone. You must have refused water for the thirsty and food for the hungry. You probably think the land belongs to the powerful and only the privileged have a right to it. 
You must have sent widows away empty-handed and crushed the hopes of orphans. That is why you are surrounded by traps and tremble with sudden fears. That is why you cannot see in the darkness and waves of water cover you. Meant to be heard. Job's friends double down on this very simple understanding of the world in which they live in. They have a very simple way of looking at the world or a world view. And that is this. If you do good, good things happen to you. The only reason why people suffer is because they are deserving of God's judgment in their suffering. And that's why, without question, they accuse Job, you certainly have done something to deserve this. And that's the gist of their argument with Job from the very beginning. You've done something wrong. You just won't fess up. You just won't fess up. What is Job's response to them? We don't have time to go into his other responses, but let me just quickly say, Job all along the way has responded to what they have said to him. He has said things like, you aren't listening to me. You only make things worse. Will you just leave me alone? He says, you're like, you're like a, a wonderful cold brook that's gone dry. You offered comfort and consolation, but when I actually get to you, you're just dry and parched and offer me nothing. In fact, the last verse in chapter uh, 21 um, is this. How can your empty cliches come for me? All your explanations are lies. That's been Job's response to his Friends, it's leave me alone. The moment Job's friends begin to sit, uh, speak, it's clear that they did not really sit with him in his complaining and his groaning. They did not really listen or seek understanding in Job's suffering. They really did not seek to empathize with him. They did not stop and ask the question, how would I feel? If I were in his shoes, they weren't asking any of those questions or processing his suffering uh, that way. They became his accusers. Instead of offering comfort and presence when they spoke, they accused. There's a lot to learn there for us. If we are not careful with our own words, listen to me. If we're not careful with our own words, what does the proverb say? That, that life and death is in the power of the what? The tongue. If we're not careful with our own words, we can become the adversary, the accuser. There's a lot of irony here. Who is the accuser from the very beginning? Satan. And the only voices that we hear in this story, aside from the Lord's and Job's, is of his wife and his friends. And who do they become? 
his accuser. You're the problem, Job. You've done something wrong. You deserve what's coming to you. It's almost as if we don't hear anything from the adversary except in chapter 1, except vicariously through his wife and his friends. They have become the accuser in his life. And if we're not careful, we can do the same. I want you to think about your own relationships, friendships, spousal relationships. Are you their advocate or are you their accuser? And how your words take shape, especially when those friends or that spouse is hurting, do you come alongside with them and sit and seek understanding? Or do you try to identify and dig into the areas where they have done wrong? The testimony of Job would say, if you're going to do that, just leave me alone. I need an advocate. I need a healing balm. I need comfort and consolation. What kind of friend do we tend to be? There's a lot to learn here about navigating friendship, especially in the context of hard, hard days and suffering. The greatest example of friendship, the kind of friendship that we should emulate is in Jesus, of course. We see Jesus. Jesus is God's response to our sin and suffering, isn't he? When you go back to Exodus and the beginning of that Exodus story, um, What does it say about the Lord that he heard the cries of his people? And that's the testimony of the Son. That for God so loved the world that he sent the Son. And his sending of the Son is a response to our own sin and our own suffering. It's a response in his action of his own wisdom and justice which takes place in his Son. Jesus is the one who draws near to us, sits with us. He is God with us. And he didn't just understand our suffering. What does the scriptures say? That he took on our suffering. He made our suffering his own. And in so doing, he goes to the cross and he rises from the grave. He becomes our hope and our assurance of great joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross So that we too who suffer all along the way can endure suffering with the anticipation of great joy because of the promise that we have in Christ's friendship. And lastly, Jesus is our advocate. He is the one that speaks on our behalf. Um, Just a few verses of scripture and then we'll close together. This is 1 John chapter 1. Listen to this. In verse 1, When we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen, we saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. And then John says this, He is the word of life. 
of life. Jesus is our greatest advocate and our greatest weakness when we put our faith and trust in the sent one who took upon our suffering on the cross, died in our place, rose victorious over sin and death. He advocates for us before the Father. In verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He says, I will vouch for this one. I will plead the case for this one. Jesus models for us the very kind of friendship that we're called to as we're spectating this conversation between Job and his friends. What kind of friends will we be? What kind of spouses will we be? Will we be an advocate who pleads the case for our spouse or for our friend, especially in the midst of suffering? We will be a consoler. Will we be a comforter or will we be the adversary? As you think about your relationships this morning, your friendships this morning, your, your marriage relationships this morning, can I ask you, what steps do you need to take to ensure that the next words that come out of your mouth are words of advocacy? When conflict comes and suffering happens, will you be the accuser or will we be the advocate? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the story of Job. Thank you for the wisdom that we find in it. And right now, Lord, we ask you to help us be the kind of friends that we need to be. To not be accusers, but to bring real presence and consolation. To seek understanding, to listen. And that when we speak, we bring life. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.